Flexibility is great. That's why there's yoga. Flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too. That's why there's United Healthcare Insurance Plans. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at uh1.com. Burrow is a furniture company known for timeless design and thoughtful construction, and free shipping, and that extends to their outdoor collection. Their outdoor furniture is built to withstand the elements, featuring rust-proof stainless steel hardware, weather-ready teak, and quick-dry foam cushions. For Memorial Day, get 15% off your Burrow purchase at burrow.com slash ACAST and up to 25% off outdoor. That's up to 25% off outdoor furniture at burrow.com slash ACAST. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, Right. For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe. Hello and welcome to the very latest Unfiltered, which features this week David Baddiel, a man who, well, I guess when I was about 14 or 15 years old and possibly for quite a few years after that, I thought was the absolute don. He's um, hitting the road next month from the 28th of January with a show called My Family Not the Sitcom, which I haven't seen, but he knows this and I'm glad I haven't seen it because I'll be able to ask questions about why he's written it and what he's done with it. And hopefully that that will sort of provide a, a certain symmetry to the interview. Welcome to Unfiltered, David Baddiel. It's a, Hi, James. It's a pleasure to have you here. Normally, you. and not that there is much of a format, but normally we, we sort of do the story so far and then move on to whatever masterpiece you are currently involved in. But given that your latest masterpiece is quite spectacularly autobiographical, mm. I'm not quite sure. I'm not quite sure how this is how this is going to... It's up to you. ...pan out. It's, it's your so up show. to you. It's, it's up to me, yeah. yeah. <laughs> it's a dynamic, isn't it? it? Is. Yeah, so, yeah. So, so, so let's wait and see. Let's start in Dollis Hill. Okay. Where where the Badil clan yeah. had settled. But your mother, I mean, both... both sides of your family had quite um, traumatic backstories. No, my dad, not so much. Uh, but your mum, very uh, my much. Da- my dad, uh, way back. I mean, any uh, immigrant, any Jew. <laughs> I've tried to avoid the word Jew. <laughs> it lasted uh, all of two minutes. I know. It's <laughs> like I get occasional stick from uh, people. I'm going to say anti-Semites, but some of them are just people uh, for, for over-mentioning it. Uh, but I suppose if you are talking about my background, it's quite hard. Yes, this is not true. Not to, and since you brought up trauma, it's incredibly hard. Uh, so, yeah, they both had trauma, but my mum had direct trauma, whereas my dad's was a few generations back. Right. Uh, with my mum, she was born in Nazi Germany and uh, sort of not smuggled out, although I think she was, like, you know, put on top of a train thing, like, where the luggage is. But I think I think it was all... Uh, well, what I do know is that it took a lot of stuff because, basically, my grandparents uh, were very wealthy in Germany. They ran a brick factory. I found most of this out when I did Who Do You Think You Are? Yes. I knew a bit of it, but found out more when I did that. They lost it all. It all got nicked, obviously, by the Nazis. And then 
at the very last minute, basically my granddad was trying to put a thousand quid, which is what you need. It's interesting considering what we have now with immigrants and whatever. The British government at that time were, were asking anyone who wasn't in kinder transport, it's either not a child or whatever, they had to show a thousand quid, a lot of money, obviously, in the 30s in a British bank account before they would let you in. Wow. And my granddad didn't have any money, but he did have some other people who'd got out already. So he'd contacted a lot of them and said, can you just lend me that money, put it in the bank account, and eventually I might get enough money for the British government to let me in. Three weeks to go before the war broke out. I mean, he didn't know that at the time. Sure. <laughs> but three, as it was, it was like a <laughs> race against out. time, yes. as it turned out. He, they did it, and he got the papers and blah, blah, blah. I mean, all sorts of other stuff went on, but sure. basically. Uh, and they got out and arrived in this country with three weeks to go before the war broke out. So that was my my mum, and my mum... How old was your mum when this happened? She was like, well, actually, that's slightly confused. And my, yeah, because my mum has got two birth certificates, right. one of which I think was redone because they were having trouble getting her out. And my This is a very long story, but basically one of the things I investigated on Who Do You Think You Are was that my mum was of the belief that her real parents were not her parents, that her real parents were actually her uncle who was younger, who just got married. Her mum was quite old by those standards when she had a sort of 40. She thought her parents couldn't have children. And uh, what really happened was that her uncle, who died in the Warsaw Ghetto, I think, there's no actual record of him, uh, my great uncle, Arno, that he was her real dad, and, and he had said, look, I've had a baby, but I'm not getting out. You are. Take the baby. Now, here's the key thing about that, is it's quite a good story, and that may be why my mum thought it. Oh, really? My mum, as your, my show demonstrates, yes. was someone who liked a good story. And she <laughs> liked a little bit of, you know, look at me, I'm a bit important, I'm a bit glamorous. And she was not beyond definitely using the Holocaust to get that as part of herself. <laughs> definitely. And I said this on Who Do You Think You Are? But they cut it out. Oh, really? <laughs> yeah. Yes, but it is. It's a, little, it's a little arresting, isn't it? Because well, 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 like, literally she said it. So the cameras came to their house. Mm. They lived in Cambridge at the time, my parents. And my mum suddenly said all this. And I thought, I've never heard this before. <laughs> I'd never heard it before, but I don't know, maybe it's true. And then I was off in Poland trying to find out if it's true. But all the time I was saying, my mum might just have made this up. Wow. You know? I've no idea. They cut all that out. That's odd, though. That I mean, that you wouldn't know. You didn't know much about your granddad's business. You didn't know. I mean, the, the, so it wasn't a story that you were regaled with often then during My childhood. grandparents didn't talk about it much. My grandparents had a really fucking hard time. Can I? Yeah, granddad was interned. Yes, yeah. of course he. Could. Well, he was interned, but actually interned. No, he liked being interned. <laughs> the Isle of Man was, a, was a relief. Being, yeah. <laughs> no, no, he had a hard time in Germany. Right. Uh, basically, his whole family had been murdered. Primarily, that's the that's the main thing. But also, as far as I can make out from pictures that I've seen, and also when I did, who do you think you are? I went to the site of my granddad's brick factory, right. which is now in a place called Kaliningrad, where actually England are playing. Tunisia, somewhere like that. <laughs> uh, but it's really the arse end of the old Soviet Union right. now. It was a very beautiful German East Prussian town called Königsberg, to where Immanuel Kant was from, and uh, famously a uh, someone who invented topography called Euler. He used to travel the seven bridges of Königsberg, and my book, The Seven, uh, The Secret Purposes, which is my third novel, is about that. Is about begins with Königsberg, but then it got just bombed like by the Russians and by the Americans, and next thing you know, it's really like a, a devastated place yeah. and I went and found my grandfather's brick factory and it's enormous but it's stumps now right yes it's so you get an idea of scale yeah got an idea of scale of it and so they were like sort of not aristocratic because no Jews are aristocratic but they were very successful hope bourgeois people they lost and they lost it all And but my grandparents didn't really want to talk about it very much no I suppose because it was like very traumatic yes. my grandfather was in a mental hospital with depression throughout the post-war period 
you know, with depression, right? I've had depression, mm. and it's a, it's very bad. What I'm going to say in terms of modern political correctness, because I am very much of the belief that you can be depressed for all sorts of reasons, and there's no reason why you should blah blah blah. You know, but my granddad had fucking good cause yes. to be depressed. Yes. <laughs> you know, straightforwardly he had good reason to be depressed. So there's they, probably two different types, though, isn't there? I mean, because the, 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 there's the one that is reactive and then there's the one that's chemical well, and then sometimes they'll combine yeah sometimes they'll combine I think that's correct I mean having been there myself I, when I was depressed one of the things I used to feel bad about <laughs> and you can feel bad yes. and be depressed at the same time yes. was I thought I don't shouldn't be depressed I know people with cancer and they're not depressed but what the fuck's wrong rational, with me being rational yeah but meanwhile he did have proper cause to be sure. depressed and, <laughs> uh, he really did and uh, and that had the big effect on my mum well, actually one of the things about my mum one of the things about the show is the show is about both my parents, uh, but it's more about my mum. I think people who haven't seen it think it's more mm. about my dad because the dementia thing is a big old hot take and people get into it. But although it is about that, really the show is about memory and it's about how you remember people. And I noticed at my mum's funeral, which was three years ago now, that all these people were telling me how wonderful my mum was and what I thought bound all these people together was they didn't really know her, right? And they were just saying what you say at funerals. Yes. And I wanted to say, well, she was sort of wonderful, but mainly she was mental. I mean, really mental. And her biggest thing, the biggest thing in my mum's life, certainly from the time being that I was like, old enough to have a proper engagement with my mother, was that she'd had an affair with a golfing memorabilia salesman but this and like turned her life over to golf uh, in a very erotic way. And, and, and that is the point at which everybody who's spoken to you about this show suggests that that sounds like something you could have written. Yeah, I didn't. It's I know you didn't, but it, I mean, it is almost implausible. The golfing memorabilia, the affair isn't, but the golfing <laughs> memorabilia salesman adds a p p sort of platform of, of comedy. But that's the key element to it, yes. really, which is that uh, uh, when I was depressed, I was in therapy for quite a long time. When was this, David? When I was depressed in my 30s. Right. I had proper, I would say I had clinical depression in my 30s. Uh, and I, I, to be honest, I'd had something like faux depression quite a lot before that, that sort of thing that you might have in your, well, not everyone, but I would say I had... Uh, in my uh, sort of late teens, early 20s, which was like a pose of depression. Yes. And then when it entered my life properly, I thought, that's n nonsense. Big difference. So there, there's a really, really big difference. Um, she was always talking, the therapist, about, you know, well, the damage that's done by my mum and this affair. Was it Freudian? Uh, no, it wasn't actually. No. It was something called relational therapy, okay. in which the therapist puts their feelings into the room. All oh, right. Uh, yeah, but never mind that for the minute because <laughs> that's going to lead us into a okay, whole no, other no, area. No, no, yeah, but because I'm trying of, to sound clever. No, no, a couple, of, a couple of times she did put her feelings into the room, and they involved telling me to fuck off. But that's that's not the point. The point is that she would often say. You know, you obviously had this very complicated upbringing. Yes. And from a Freudian point of view, it is very complicated because my mum was very brazen about her affair, very keen to tell people about her affair, very keen to tell me and my brothers about the affair because my mum thought it was glamorous in a very 70s way. She thought having an affair was glamorous, right? Yes. And so when I'm in therapy talking about it and trying to be serious about it, what I always noticed was I wanted to laugh because it was so much about golf, right? right. Golf. <laughs> I wanted to say it's quite hard to be the therapy and really crying and really upset say, oh yeah, she was oh, far too much, she was too much, it was damaging. No, it was about golf, and it would make me, make me want to laugh. So when I came to write the show, <laughs> the show embraced that. Yes. And it embraced it in a way that I think is positive, because it didn't, if you see the show, I think you have seen I it. I haven't seen it, no. But it's one thing, it's very much not, it's, just, it's not judgmental about my mother. It's a very celebratory show about both my parents in a very, I would say, unusual way, because I've taken what most people would think, I think, as the stuff you don't talk about yes. after someone's died or got dementia, and said, no, this is who they were, and it's absolutely not good parenting, and it's absolutely probably 
damaging or whatever, but it's fucking hilarious and it's true <laughs> and that's what I'm going to hang on to. And that's yes. what I'm going to that's what I'm going to say. It's true. It's made me who I am. I am kind of happy with who I am sure. even through all this yes. shit. So why not celebrate? But look at look at what it involved, or look, yeah, look yeah. at the mangle of it's my fun, life. But, but comedy, come out the other end. I genuinely believe in in a way that I hope is not, you know, uh, over like a comedian trying to do an inspirational quote. But I genuinely believe that comedy is a way through. Yes, like of my process with trolls on on Twitter is never to ignore them, to try and make a joke about them. Yes. and I'm successful at that sometimes, sometimes less successful. But, but I think if you can make them funny, yes. then a it's like someone just did that. Someone just. I don't know if you saw that, uh, uh, but I, I was at a conversation. No, I did. This well, I is at, the Holocaust yeah, reference I was today. At, I was doing a chat at a place called JW3, which is his Jewish venue, with a woman called Devorah Baum, who's mm. an academic who's done a really good book called The Jewish Joke, which is an investigation of what Jewish jokes are. And she told this joke, which I thought was a very beautiful joke, which was a Holocaust survivor after the Holocaust goes up to heaven, tells God a Holocaust joke, and God says, that's not funny. And the Holocaust survivor says, well, I guess you had to be there. Which is a brilliant It's joke. a beautiful On, on many levels. On many, many yes. levels. And the level I chose to illustrate, I chose to pull out of it for me was that it says, you know, he wasn't, wasn't yeah. he? Because Auschwitz was the place without God. You know, whether you believe in God or not, sure. it's the place without God. Yes. You know, and... That, I think, is part of what makes it a beautiful joke. So there's been lots of responses to it, some from Christians, right? Some from people just being weird. Some bloke who told me God is not a he or a you're she. Still quite, you're, st it. you're still quite... Your Twitter game is strong, but some of it still shocks you, right? Some of it, you can, yeah. there's a sense of surprise. Well, I've been immersed in it for a little bit longer than you. Yeah, maybe. I mean, you get it as well. Yes. I mean, sometimes I'm shocked. Sometimes I find, is it possible to be shocked anymore? Yeah, of course. No, no. I, I mean, it's, I'm not really shocked by the anti-Semitism. <laughs> right. Uh, because but no, I was thinking more of the crassness. The, the, crassness. the poor quality of well, the anti-Semitism, if you well, pardon yeah. the expression. Well, it's, one bloke, because there was, I got, well, let's take two examples. I got... One just now, mm. which was standard anti-Semitism, which was someone who responded to that tweet, yes. which has got loads of good responses, yeah, loads yeah. of interesting responses as well. You should never forget there are people who oh, are really interesting and genuine and yeah, appreciate stuff. Yes. But one bloke called something like white resistance or whatever, start, yeah, start <laughs> saying, yeah, but did six million really die? Check your facts. Holler hoax, right? Holler hoax. But then brilliantly, yes. some people have said, because I, I said comedy workshops are not what they used to be, right? <laughs> yeah, and, then, and then some people have started saying, yeah, holler hoax is not really a very good pun, is it? Because they didn't spend very long on that, but I suppose hoax, of course, didn't really work. And then someone else has just tweeted to say, it should really be folocaust, as in F-A-U-X. Oh, so right? And then he said, the trouble with these people, these deniers, they spend much more time on denying than punning. And you see, for me... That saves that's, everything. That's the correct way of dealing with it. Of course. The correct yes. way of dealing with it is not to say, as some other people have said, I mean, you know, good luck to these people saying it, but this is terrible, mm. so depressing, it's awful. It is all those things, but it exists. Yes. And it really fucking exists. Point and laugh. And and I say point and laugh, because mm. yeah, I think that's, as a comedian, that is the way of dealing with it. And in a different way, the show does that, which is the show says, some of this stuff probably was really damaging. But were you doing that as a young man? Were you, were you finding comedy in your own situation? Because, I mean, off the top of my head, you must have felt aggrieved on your father's behalf. Mm. I mean, that side of it. But, well, but I possibly am still to some extent, although you see, that's partly why the other half of the show is about my dad, because my course. dad was in no way he a was, model dad. My dad no. was an un... And in no way was he a statue... What's that say? Okay, sorry, I thought the police had come to get me. Uh, <laughs> my dad was, uh, you know, uh, I think... But were I'm you cracking jokes about your own situation when you yes. were young? You were. Well, not like, when I was with really your young. I don't know. When, when it first, this whole scenario Golfing first appeared, probably when I was chapter. about 11. Oh, really? So yeah, 11 or 12. Age, mate. Just... Yeah, but I think 
certainly me and my brothers, and my older brother particularly, we did think it was funny. I mean, yeah. we were a little bit confused initially because it wasn't like, I'm having this affair and now golf. Right. It was like golf, right? Right Now, you weren't interested in golf, mother. Why are you interested in golf? Yeah. What's happening? Like, and there's golf everywhere because my mum started selling golfing memorabilia, right. which would have pissed him off because he sold golfing memorabilia. Right. That's another thing I point out in the show yes. is that the last thing I think he wanted from this affair was a rival <laughs> in golfing memorabilia. <laughs> but that's what happened. So... Uh, I think we were confused for a bit, yeah. and then it became clear because she did used to talk about it a lot. And you know, you know my brother tells the story, which is in the show because the show includes film. Yeah. So I filmed my brother telling this story <laughs> about how he was with a new girlfriend called Tracy, and he took Tracy to meet my mum at her stall, Golfiana, in Gray's Antique Market in Bond Street, which, by the way, was opposite my dad's dinky toy stall. So you'd have thought he might have noticed. Anyway, she's talking to Ivor, and then she mentions this bloke, who's, I'm going to say his name, because I mention it in the show yeah. all the time, it's his real name, yeah. David White. She, his name just comes up, and then she turns to Tracy and goes, I've been, I've been his lover for 20 years, and just carries on speaking to Ivor, as if she's not said anything of any note, right? And she was always doing shit like that. She, she was glamorising herself, then, totally. in the same way as possibly she did with the story of her origin. That's why I I link those two things. Yeah. My, my stereotype of a North London Jewish family, though, would be a, a degree of concern about what the neighbours thought. Yeah, like, but my parents were not stereotypical Jewish clearly. parents in any way. <laughs> really not at all. No. I mean, that's, I think, one of the things about my previous show that I did uh, was called Fame Not the Musical, and that was really a show about how if you've been in British showbiz for a long time, or in any kind of showbiz for a long time, at the sort of level I have, which is sort of like all right level, uh, but not super famous, right, then what you get is a sort of endless stream of sort of mundane shit that happens to you as a result of being slightly recognised, misrecognised, people like thinking you're this and you're not, essentially having a version of yourself out there that isn't you. Yes. And and with me, one of those versions is, oh, he comes from a Jewish family, right. therefore they must be kind of quite wealthy intellectual bohemians from yeah. Hampstead, a bit like the Freuds or something. Yeah. Nothing like that. We but, lived... but not just because of, of, of the of the Jewish North London angle, also because of, you know, going to Trinity to read English and stuff. Kings. Of, Kings, I beg your pardon, to right. read English. Yeah. There's, a, there's a presumption that you must have... You must have come from that milieu. No, I didn't. I, I, I know you didn't, yeah, yeah. but it's not just they, people see geography and, and religion. It would also be what brought you to their attention was was quite rarefied comedy and, mm. and that kind of... Maybe. And I don't you think? know. I, well, I don't know. Maybe. I think it's also to do with like, having glasses <laughs> and stuff. <laughs> it could also and not be being you know, a class warrior, as yeah. alternative comedians were in the 80s, which I obviously was not. Uh, but what I always do think about, about you know, being from an immigrant stock... Mm is that you, you don't think of class in the same way anyway. I mean, I went to a private school, but it was a, we, I went there because it was direct grant at right. the time. Yes. And direct grant meant that my dad, who had, had literally no money because he'd been made redundant and hadn't worked for three years, was able to send me there because, you know, he was means-tested and that Qualified. Meant, uh, but you'd yeah. have to pass an academic yeah, test no, but That's the key thing, yes. is I was, and still am quite, clever. Yes. And being clever meant that I got into that school and then I got into Cambridge. And that kind of aspirational thing due to intellect is an immigrant thing. Right. And actually, when I go and read now, because I do children's books now, to the, if I go to any schools, really, but certainly those schools which are very, like, you know, a little bit academic and pushy or whatever, sure. it's mainly Indian kids now. It's yes. Asian kids. And I think, again, there's that thing with an immigrant community of, like, well, we want our kids to do well. Now, I think if still in this country a slightly weird thing with that yeah. not so much if you're from that background but if you're from a background that 
is seen as white, which mm. Jewish sort of is, although right. not by Hollerhawks, man, <laughs> right? I think it's assumed, oh, well, if he's white and he's going to Cambridge, he must be posh. Yes. And that isn't correct in my case and actually lots of other people's. They're probably more correct... Ten years after you left, than it was for Possibly. your journey. It seems to have gone a bit backwards. That notion of mobility. Well, certainly to yeah. Oxbridge. Yeah, well, and those schools stopped as well. Yes. I thought that was. Got, I mean, you know. So probably, you knew you were clever. I knew I was clever from. Yeah. Eleven. I guess. Eight, yeah. Nine. I, I mean, did well at school. Yeah. Uh, I was articulate. Were there books in the house? Was it? A, was it a literary? Yeah. It wasn't. No. Well, my mum, not at all. No. Until, uh, she, she, until, until she got her collection of Nick Faldo golf, memoirs, golf books, <laughs> yes, and yes. she wrote golf. My mum wrote five books about golf. I she mean, really went all in on it. Oh God, yeah, I should have brought one. They're called <laughs> things like Golf: The Golden Years, and you know, out on the links. They're mainly anthologies with right, pictures yes. okay. of like ornamental people playing golf. So school, clever. I mean, scholarship effectively, although it called different things. Uh, I mean, a means-tested academic entrance. Yeah. Um, it, 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 thinking of the future at all, I mean, just because I'm always intrigued by the, the, the that footlights journey and whether or not everybody turns up jumping onto the stage. I mean, performing was that mm. was that in your blood or was no. that no? No, I, I thought you were going to say that. The same thing, really, as whatever the the image that I've painted of the sort of bookish yeah uh, I mean my dad he did have quite a lot of books but they were mainly history and science my dad was a scientist before he got made redundant he worked for Unilever um, as a kind of middle manager right. although I think he had aspirations to do more than that as a scientist but they never really worked out um, right. so we had science books we had history books my mum did actually was keen and I think it was important for me on just reading you know, Enid Blyton and yeah, yeah. stuff like that. Um, but I I didn't come from that background. And then performing, in fact, showbiz would, was even further away. Yes. Uh, I remember when I was for my bar mitzvah, I uh, managed to get an electric guitar. Not a very good electric guitar, like a Columbus Stratocaster. Yeah. And it cost like 40 quid or something from a place in Hendon. But I remember telling a bloke at school that I had an electric guitar and he thought I was lying. And he thought I was lying because it was such a symbol of another world, like Top of the Pops, David Bowie, whatever, that the idea that someone he knew could have an electric guitar just seemed ridiculous. And that was as that was my distance wow. from showbiz. Why did you want an electric guitar? Oh, I, I wanted to be like... Can you, you know, play? Yeah, I can play that. And I was in a band, uh, well, not then, but when I was 16, I was in a kind of new wave band with a bloke who then went on to be in a band called The Sundays. Have you heard The Sundays? Of course. Yeah, Dave Reading, Gavrin, writing, and arithmetic. That's right. He's Harry. my oldest friend. Is that right? He's my oldest mate, that. yes. And, uh, and I was in a band with him, and he was like 100 but then, But then you're me. contradicting yourself in a way. Because I'm not. Being in a band isn't... It is. What about performing? You mean? Showbiz, being a million miles away from who you are. You've got a guitar at 14 and you're in a band at 16 with somebody who went on to, to, to conquer the hip parade. <laughs> there must I... have been an impulse. You didn't get oh, no, pulled not... onto the stage. No, no that I... sorry, Joe. I agree with that. What I mean is when I read, uh, I don't know, I can't think of anyone at the moment, sure. but when I read people who for whom showbiz was properly in their blood, yes. it tends to, you know, like the Redgraves or whatever. I mean, okay. that's unfair because that's obviously a dynasty. <laughs> but uh, there were people. I'm sure there are people who we think of as stars who, uh, even if they didn't come from that background, right. were performing from a very early age and were fostered to do so. I mean, you know, encouraged to do so by their parents, and there's probably footage of them. I didn't know anything like that. 
And my parents didn't... About school plays and stuff like that? Were you... No, uh, although I do remember in my Jewish primary school, I had one line in my school play, which is the most Jewish line ever. This was it. It was, well, Rabbi, you certainly do drive a hard bargain. Oh, that Lord. was it. And you think, you think when you hear that, well, the Jewish that. line is Rabbi, but unfortunately it's bargain. <laughs> <laughs> but that was my one line in the school play. I didn't have any uh, school play action in my secondary school. At all. Do you remember getting a buzz when you were in the band? Do you remember? Was there no sense of the, the, yeah, the crowd? I, I was very interested in music, right? And still am. Yes. Um, and I did play classical piano because I think that is another thing about being from an immigrant family is that the one thing that did show aspiration, apart from wanting us to be educated, was that my parents were sort of obsessed with classical music. Certainly, my mum, and that may have been the German thing mm. because her dad was like a big Wagner fan, even though Gosh, yes. he was like, you know, had good reason not to like Wagner. Mm. Um, and so I learned classical piano, um, and then I taught myself the guitar. And as my big rock and roll punk rock statement when I was 16, I went along to my grade seven, and I deliberately played the wrong one wrong note. I was going to say all the wrong notes. Sorry, it was one wrong <laughs> note throughout a piece. That was my big Ted Grundy Sex Pistols moment. And I failed grade seven. Um, and But before that, I'd gone to quite a lot of classical concerts without really understanding it or liking sure. it. Um, and so I so guess... duty. Me, yeah, well, it was more than duty. It was Some a talent. thing that you have as a kid. I don't yeah. know if you had anything like this, where you're trying to find out who you are. Yeah. And in my case, my parents slightly decided to, certainly my mum, fill that in for me. So okay. she wanted me yes. to be someone who liked classical music. Mm. She also wanted me to be someone who liked books. And she was right about that. But she wasn't right about classical music, and I still have problems with classical music, which I would like to like. Yes. But as soon as I hear it now, I feel like that 11-year-old who was dragged along by my grandfather to see Daniel Berenboim at the Royal Festival Hall or whatever. Yeah. But anyway, I like music, and I wanted to be in a band, but I don't feel that as showbiz. I, 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 I think if you were... A... Well, that's because you were, you were musical. You didn't want to be in a band to get laid. You wanted to be in a band well, to... Well, no doubt, desperately it. wanted yes, to get laid. But I was, that, you I was didn't in a join band. a band just to do that, which is... No, I, I, I didn't even... I wasn't even a band. I wasn't a singer. No. You know, and I was like, just wanted to be in a band because I like music. And it was 1979. And I think if you were 16 and, and had an electric guitar and sure. some mates, you were yeah. in a band. Yeah, exactly. You know, but I, I didn't have any big performing thing. I wasn't like, you know... People who say, oh, I went to Anna Cher, you yeah. know, I did all that. I didn't do any of that. So when did you discover? Because I, I presume... No, there you... was a thing. There was a thing, uh, which was kind of weird. Because I... Well, there was... The key element, key moment for me was my brother playing me Derek and Clive. That's the key moment. That's when I thought, I want to do this. Yes. Uh, I want to be... <laughs> but the De Derek and Clive is weird, though, because that's very into it. It's tapes that yeah. you can... Most people listened to on small, old-fashioned tape record. It's not. It's not... Stadium stuff. It's no. not. It's not audience. Well, it's a very intimate. Yeah, but comedy. remember again, we're talking. You know, seventies. You know, when did I hear that? Probably when I was fourteen. But I don't think of Derek and Clive as necessarily being performance art. It's it's closer to. I think it's really it's very high comedy. In my yes, opinion. but it's close. It's closer to eavesdropping. Maybe, it? but I think don't, don't forget what I'm saying is in Britain certainly, yeah. and this is before the internet, so there wasn't much seeing of no, American comedians no, that sure. can happen. Yeah. you're looking at Jasper Carrot. Billy Connolly, and then a bunch of fat men in bow ties who aren't funny. Yeah. So, it's and I did, and I really like Jasper Carrot and Billy Connolly. Of course. Then, uh, but it still didn't probably speak to me 
in the same way as Derek and Clive did. Who are absolutely filthy, yeah. but also incredibly sophisticated yeah. characters for people who don't know, created by, by, by Peter Cook and Dudley Moore. And your yeah. brother presumably brought this to you with a real sense of excitement and said, David, you've got to check this. Yeah, yeah he had a cassette of it, of uh, Derek and Clive Live. Yeah. And it felt very secret, even though my dad was the swearest man in the world and probably have loved it and probably did hear it, I don't know. But it still felt like we were listening to this in my brother's bedroom yes. secretly. And what I still think about Derek and Clive is, and what I still love about it, is there's a liberation in it of like, we are just going to say the first thing that comes into our heads. Yeah. We are two incredibly yeah. funny men, yeah. so it's going to be funny, but it's going to be no censorship, no inhibition, whatever. And then they start egging each other on. They start on. egging each other on, and they're drunk for a lot of it yes. and all the rest of it. And some of it isn't funny, and no. some of it probably is unacceptable now, all the rest of it. But at the time, I think this is like poetry. It's like comic poetry. People have said punk. Maybe, mm. maybe. But either way, there's something that I really love about it, which I still I think is important to me artistically, which is it's got a deep comic authenticity to it. It's people who aren't thinking, oh, how should I be funny? And yeah. what's the prevailing thing in, uh, that I should be doing to try and catch you know, whatever thing it is that I should appear as comic? No, I'm going to go to the sort of id of comedy that's in me, and I'm just going to bounce out what's in there. And that felt so funny and unbelievably funny. And then what happened was about uh, a year after that, so I was interested in comedy, my school review happened. And uh, my school had a sketch show, a review, which happened at lunchtime. And every year it was rubbish. I mean, without fail, terrible. It was like songs and... I mean, my school wasn't a posh public school. It sure. was a bourgeois public school, yeah. private school. So it was mainly kids from North London, quite a lot of Jews. They're not posh, but they're some of them are quite rich. Mm. Uh, but for some reason, it had... Like a, maybe like all petty bourgeois schools do, it. they try to aspirate and try to be like a public school. Sure. So, for example, I arrived there; they don't play soccer. I was always really fucked off about that. Yeah, same because, at my school, which yeah. was a proper public school, uh, was but it? it was a snobby thing to yeah. play rugger. rugger yeah, rugger, but that's rugger, wrong rugger. anyway because Eaton and Harrow play soccer. I know, I know. You know, I know. so I was always really pissed off about yeah, that. Me I think too. part of that was this show; they had songs about you know, I don't know what a lovely place the school was as if it was like yeah. a place that you punt at. Yes. Right? So yes. Yes. so there's all that happening and it's rubbish and every year no one's interested and people just talk throughout it. Then for some reason that I still don't know, I got asked to write it with this other bloke called Nick and I decided what we're going to do, which is what surely kids want, is sketches about the teachers. Yeah. And they were very, very strong sketches about the teachers that we wrote. This is your final year? Or? My final, well, right. at that time you had to stay on an extra term to, to do, do Oxbridge. Oxbridge. Yes. So I was in my, about to do that. Sixth term. Yeah, I was in my extra yeah. term. And that that was the people who always put it on. It's called the 6S oh, yeah. Review. Yes. Okay. Right. So I do, so I write these sketches, which include, for example, the librarian, who I remember was a very strict and unpleasant man, but also a Christian, we had him having sex with the library assistant, who was a woman, but she was a blow-up doll in our thing, on the photocopier with the sketch involved boys, you know, making photocopies of it while it was going on. Gosh. You know, we had another sketch whereby I, I was the music teacher and I came on and he always used to do this in assemblies to try and get people to sing the hymns, but I just swore at the audience, telling them to fucking sing, right? Ever. And it was like that, and it, I still think, I mean, I've, I've let's be self-aggrandizing for yeah, a minute yeah. I've stormed some gigs yeah. but it may be still amongst the best response I've ever got because I no mean, one could believe what they no, were no saying. one could believe it I mean, they grew, I mean the kids went mental for <laughs> it it really went through the roof and it was supposed to be on uh, all week like every lunchtime it was immediately taken off by the school I was immediately taken to the headmaster's office and they said right we should expel you but 
because we want you to go to Cambridge, and mm. they didn't say this, but what they meant was, we are aware of our league tables. <laughs> <laughs> we're board. not going to expel you, but you're really bad, and blah, blah, blah. And, and that was great, because it meant I didn't get expelled, but I was suddenly cool yes. at school. Had you not been cool not before? especially. I was a much cooler people than me. Were I mean, you popular? I, I was all right. I wasn't, like, you know, uh, like really hated at school. Sure. I'm actually just to tell you, uh, and I don't think I'm going to forget this. Like, I'm going to start another story, but <laughs> there's, a, there's a heckle, uh, famous heckle, which has been put down to me. People think it's me. It was heckled out, but in fact, it's not me. It's I, me who told the story. Right. And the story was there was a, a an open spot at the comedy store called Cynical Sid, and Cynical Sid goes on stage and he's doing really badly, and he's kind of like it's obvious Cynical shouldn't even be on stage. Mm. He's kind of like very awkward and whatever, and then eventually someone at the back shouts, "Everybody hates you." Everybody hates you. You must know from school, right? which is a brilliant and yeah. devastating heckle. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Now, I've noticed when I've seen people occasionally talk about the worst heckles, they say, this is a heckle that was said to David Baddiel. And it often makes me think, <laughs> oh, people must think I was that bloke at school. <laughs> oh, no. but I wasn't really, but nor was I. I was sort of an in-betweener. Nor was I incredibly popular. I just, sure. you know, hung around with my friends. But after the success review... You were Peter Cook and Dudley Moore Peter rolled Cook into and one. Moore, yeah. <laughs> and that made me want to be a comedian... Then did it immediately? I mean, you just thought, Christ, yeah. I could do this for a living. Yeah, I don't know about a living. I just thought that I is could brilliant. do a lot more. It's, it's really a good feeling, is what yes. I thought. But it's never, really... never, because Matt Lucas was here a couple of weeks ago, and he he went to my school, of course. Yes, yes, but he didn't go to. He started university and dropped out, I think, because the career, the comedy stuff, started happening right. for him. Did yeah. you? Did you, you? Would not have contemplated not going to Cambridge? Well, I that? went to Cambridge yes. because I knew about Footlights and I knew about. Oh, Peter okay, Kirk. really that much? Oh, totally. Yeah. Gosh. No, I, I was going to go to Sussex or, or Stirling for some reason because I was very interested in literature. And the thing I would have done had I not been a comedian is be an academic uh, in literature. That's the other thing. You'd started your PhD. Well, later on. In I know. UCL. Obviously, after yeah, doing, yeah, but, I, but... Yeah, I did. A, I did a PhD. Well, I did a whole. I did. I virtually finished it. Well, three years at UCL. Yeah, well, I didn't. I, I, the last minute, I thought, actually, you know what? I seem to be doing all right as a comedian. But let's have we fast forwarded. That's my fault. Yeah. So you got you got that much more interested in the. But no, you must have still enjoyed the academic side of it. No, I did. Up, yeah. No, I did. Um, well, it was so you had the it, best but of I, both. But it was a slightly weird '80s thing as well, which is. I wasn't sure about going to Cambridge. I was very left wing at the time, right? And I thought, oh, is it a bit, you know, wrong to mm. Cambridge for whatever reason? Uh, I should go to Sussex, which was kind of a very right on place, or okay. Stirling. They had a brilliant English course, but then at the last minute, Footlights. And at that point, I had been to the comedy store and yes. I'd seen the start of alternative comedy, but I still didn't really understand. Oh, that's a way of being a comedian. Yes. So I was aware of Python, obviously, and Peter Cook was a massive hero. And so I went to Cambridge, yeah, to be in Footlights. And what sort of people had you seen at the comedy store? Who, who uh, were the early? Uh, Tony you... Allen. Okay. Tony Allen. Yes, yeah, uh, yeah. And I remember a comedian who I had a discussion with uh, just recently on Twitter called Ian McPherson, who the previous discussion I had with him, we'd had a fight. Uh, <laughs> and we made it up on Twitter the other day. But anyway, he's an Irish poet comedian. Yeah. Uh, I can't remember anyone else. So you knew that things were changing. And so yeah, you although... weren't going to go to Footlights and start doing Oscar Wilde sketches? Well, or... Well, well, actually, I mean, this is a whole other thing. But when I start, when I was in Footlights, I was doing stand-up. Yeah. I, mean, I wrote sketches as well, but I was doing stand-up because I'd seen enough to know this is what I want to do, not the sort of character monologue, blah, blah, blah. Got you. Um, and then when I came out of Footlights, it was a weird thing because, and this still happens a lot as well, there was a period of about four years when being in Footlights was about the worst thing you could have done because of the rise of the edgy yeah. lefty because of the rise of you know when you see they took the piss out of this in the young ones yes didn't they? when yeah. you see that young yeah. one sketch yeah, yeah, yeah. where it says something like 
Wankers College with, with Stephen Fry and Emma Thompson, Thompson something like that something like that yeah. Tossers College Oxford yeah, yes, yes, yeah. Yes, and yes. Ste- it's all very well for Stephen and Hugh who by the way were, had made it by then and yes. could very happily be in a self ironizing sketch like that right, but if you'd come out Footlights in 1986 <laughs> which I did and you rang up the comedy store yes. saying I'd like to do a gig please and they would say okay have you had any experience in comedy and I would say very proudly yes I was vice president of the Cambridge Footlights they'd put the phone down Think, they'd put really, the phone down away. and I'd have to ring them back and say no I haven't had any I'm a different bloke I so violent any. reverse snobbery yeah it was a really violent first time, which by the way completely I often get accused of like being part of the Oxbridge Mafia yes. who just got it was like of no use whatsoever because it was quite a small window it wasn't oh, no, it? No, I mean, then, it, then it changed again because you've got Mitchell and Webb oh, no, and no, back, back to that. I mean, so you, people, you just were right in the middle of yeah, the worst yeah. period ever to be worst a period ever. And actually, I am one of very few people who got any success in comedy from that particular period I didn't know there's, that. Like, there's one or two others makes perfect like, sense Nick Hancock yes Hunt and Dennis, uh, around about the same period, but really very few. And then it changes and you get Mitchell and Webb, who, yeah. by the way, are brilliant. Well, of course stress, they are. Just stress. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds. And they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. I don't, I don't think they're no, where they are just it's because of that. Clear, it's clear where you're coming from. Yeah, you, but you, just, you just got washed up on a beach. I just started again, really, and I went and did the London Cabaret Circuit for five years. You, so you weren't your Spurs. Were you not... So, Punt and Dennis, you mentioned, you weren't collaborating with them at this stage. No, uh, no. The Punt and Dennis were people I knew, right. but we were put together, actually. Me and Rob Newman and them were put together by Radio 1. And for the Mary Whitehouse experience. Yeah. And did you know Rob before that? I had met Rob at Cambridge. Rob doesn't sometimes tell people that he went to Cambridge, but he did. But he wasn't in Footlights. Okay. He was this... One of the things about... Cambridge, I, I can't speak for Oxford, I've never been sure. is you don't just get, as I say, posh people there. No. You also get strange, interesting, unusual Absolutely. people like Rob Newman. So yes. Rob Newman had come from a, just a sort of underprivileged background uh, somewhere near Stevenage he's from. He'd had mm. a very rough childhood, Rob Newman, and not got anything like the qualifications he needed to get into Cambridge, but was clearly very bright and interesting and talented and had ended up in an interview and a place called you know, Selwyn College, mm. and the person there had just thought this is an interesting and talented bloke and given him a place. Now, I think that's good. Yes, I do. You know, but I don't know if it sort of happens anymore or whatever. But he was like a maverick, mm. and he, I met him there. To be honest, I don't quite know what happened to Rob's Cambridge career after that. I met him in my first year. Then I'd heard he'd gone to live in Toxteth, okay. uh, which he had. Uh, I don't know why. It's not very near Cambridge. No, it's, um, it's quite uh, a commute. Yes, yeah, quite a commute. <laughs> uh, and I think, yeah, I don't know if he dropped out or what, 
but then I kept on bumping into him in London on the circuit. On the circuit right. And so he was doing stand up as well. He was doing impressions at the time. Okay, yes, of course, because he did spitting actually, image, didn't he? And, yeah, but yeah. what I remember most clear about Rob very early on was uh, I think me and him had just started writing for Week Ending, which was this show on Radio 4 that you could just rock up and, and send in jokes. And right. a, but you, more importantly, you could go to the meetings. Oh, okay. They had an open door policy on anyone can come to these meetings. There was the commission writers meeting yes. and the non-commission writers meeting. And the non-commission writers meeting was full of nutters. But also it was where if you could write comedy, you got, you know. Would caught. you take something like that in your stride or would you be throwing up beforehand in the loo? Non-commission writers meeting. Yeah, just just because. And oh, no, I'll be all right with that. Would I, you? I was very nervous before I uh, started doing stand-up properly on stage. On stage. Yeah. So the audience could be intimidating, but not the sort of rarefied corridors of the BBC with this wonderful heritage of. No, well, to be honest, it didn't feel very rarefied. Did it not? The, the writers, the non-commission writers yeah, meeting, still, was mainly I mean, tramps. Right. So <laughs> just getting a warm. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I think quite a few of them were just tramps. Um, and but one thing I remember at Rob is that I've seen him a bit, and I was a little bit wary of him because it had this maverick, slightly mad time in Cambridge. I'd actually done a film, a uh, short film, terrible short film, <laughs> with him in it, yeah. and then he'd vanished. So I thought, well, like, I'm a bit worried about him. Yeah. Is he all right? But then he had some funny ideas, and we ended up writing together. And then he hadn't really started doing the cavalry circuit, but he did an impression for me of Jonathan Ross. Mm. And I remember at the time thinking, bloody hell, Jonathan Ross has only just got on the telly. This is a brilliant impression. And the idea then, it might seem odd now, the idea then that you could be an impressionist and not do Frank Spencer oh, and Harold Wilson or whoever. Like, yeah, the yes. bank of my yeah, 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 yeah. impressions that everyone who could do impressions seemed to do. Yes. That you could do modern people like Jonathan. Yes. That just struck me as like amazing. And it, I know it doesn't sound it now, but honestly, it does. No, it does. It, it, no one was doing impressions like that. It was, uh, there's another guy, Phil Cornwall, yeah. started doing that as well. But only him and Rob were doing these kind of like, oh, these are new people okay. with voices we haven't heard, yes. you know, impressioned and exaggerated before. So he'd start doing that. And were you simpatico? Did you did you yeah. strike up a special friendship because you're writing together? Or I don't know if we were we did strike up a friendship. I mean, me and Rob, you know, but you weren't uh, a double act in any except as a uh, writing team. Well, you know, strangely, I don't know if I've ever been in a double act as such. I've worked very closely and been on stage with and on camera with two other brilliant comedians, yes. but we've never been a double act like Reeves and Mortimer. No, I know, I know, a double I, act. I, I, I don't think. I think, and particularly with Rob, yeah, with Rob, we were writing together and we created. The Mary White's experience with Bun and Dennis together and characters within that, but we were also doing separate stand up and you know, where we used always it, having you know. your, your, your own yeah. avenues. How, how ambitious were you at this point? I mean, five years on the circuit means you're doing it at least in large part for love, yeah. But were you did you well, have your eye on glittering that's not prizes? True, actually, is it not? I mean, I was doing it. well, love is an odd word because the circuit was rough yeah but you days. loved doing it well I, I didn't always love doing no. it no sometimes it was fucking horrible but <laughs> within a year I was comparing the comedy store oh okay so uh, and I still remember and I still think of it as one of my proudest moments yes. and I've had a lot of stuff but sure. I remember Kim Kinney who used to run the comedy store coming into the dressing room and saying to me I think we'll move you up to compare next week wow. just in a very throwaway way deliberately sort of like sure, you know, sure, and, sure. and I was so happy about that because right. it was really an honor and it was Difficult but brilliant if you got it right because yes. the audience were really on the side of the compare, yes. and you got paid four hundred quid for the night even then. Yes, you know, so that so that was money. suddenly like because I needed money because yeah. I didn't have any money at all. Sure. I was on the dole. 
apart from when I was earning them, oh, fuck, uh, you know, yes, of some course. of the time. Uh, They're not going to come for you now. I, yeah, I didn't have any money, uh, <laughs> and I was just living at home with my parents, who really wanted me to go. It's not like now, where you sort of want your kids. To, they just wanted me out of yeah. there. So that was when I could start to have a job. Who yeah. did you ring? Who do you go to first with that news, when you got that amazing news? Who, who, who in your life at that time would have been the first person you called? Uh, well, it was probably my girlfriend at the time. Janine, what this? Janine Kaufman, uh, who was my girlfriend at the time. She, uh, probably her, or my brother. I lived with yeah. Ivor, my brother, for quite a long time in a flat in Kilburn. Um, and because Kilburn, uh, this goes out all over the world, I imagine. Yes. But Kilburn, I used to live. And one thing about doing the comedy store in the 80s, in Kil- when you lived in Kilburn, is that I came back on the night bus quite a lot. Yeah. And I remember the first night that I'd done two uh, late nights at the store. Uh, so I was coming back like, two o'clock in the morning or something on the night bus and looking outside I thought oh there's a riot going on this will be on the news tomorrow because there's like burning bins and people chucking each other into shops and stuff like that and then I realised no that's what happens every Saturday night in Kilburn it's just going to be like this and I think it still is I think it's resisted gentrification Queen's Park stops and Kilburn begins it's it's not not a line that you you cross without your wits about Yeah, but probably my brother or my girlfriend at the time so and then uh, not my parents strangely no that's why I asked no one thing about my parents is Again, it's very key part of the show, but the, 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 my parents were very 70s parents in mm. that, in lots of ways, the sex, all that, but in a very specific way, which is, have you got kids? Yes, I've got two girls. Okay, so I think the key element of our generation is we have we stop our lives, I mean, not completely, but we stop them where we need to stop them for our children. Yes. My parents did not stop their lives for us. No. They carried on doing their mad shit. In the case of my mum having an affair, in the case of my dad just swearing a lot and generally not noticing that we were there and just carried on being totally themselves. They did not think, oh, actually, I've had kids now. That sort of means I've got to change yeah. who it's I am. It's an amazing shift yeah, in the space of two generations. It's a massive shift, I think. I mean, for me, the only thing that has changed who I am properly is having children. Because sure. I am absurdly, kind of wearingly myself in all situations. And I think, like, fame and all that stuff, it's all been great, yeah. you know, but hasn't really changed who I am. Having children has changed who I am in right. a good way. Made you more... Made me more uh, empathetic. Yeah. Made me less thinking about myself all mm-hmm. the time. Made me actually, as it were, physically or metaphysically, whatever the word is, see the world from someone else's point of view. Think about them first. Instead yeah. of having like a reflex thing like, oh, fuck, how does this affect <laughs> me? I do think, well, how does this affect them? You know, yes. and, the and, and be really... like. But I don't know if my parents... Had that. And one of the things about my parents is my mum really liked the fact, I think, when I got famous, that I was famous. and was always first there and there was a premiere or anything yeah. like that. But not in her whole life did my mum say to me, oh, I like that joke. That's an interesting joke. Oh, yeah, but nothing. Never. My dad a bit more because my dad was a really funny bloke. Yes. But he, at some level, wasn't bothered either. So the idea of calling them would wouldn't not it, be... Wouldn't have happened. No. They're sort of desperate to prove that it was working or yeah, but seeking thought, approval. When did you think you were famous? When, when would you first have... Probably about six months after it was true, you'd have first felt even vaguely comfortable describing yourself. Well, in in, in Fame Not the Musical, which was the first show, I, mm. I spent a lot of time talking about the awkwardness of talking about being famous, yes. particularly at a time when I was less famous than I used to be. That's what I talked about in that show. I yes. said, I'm going to talk about being famous. That's going to be complicated. And then I'm going to do something even more complicated, which I'm going to be talking about less famous mm. than I used to be. And I was saying the famous don't really like to talk about being famous, but they really don't like being talking about being less famous than they used to be. So I wanted to talk about both those things because I'm interested in talking about stuff you're not meant I'd to talk about. I saw you on Jonathan Ross a few years ago when you were clearly struggling a bit with the 
sense of not being on top of the game as you had been previously. I don't know, I was struggling with it. I was, oh, I was, I know the show you mean. He ended up. You seemed quite sad that night. I thought. No, not really. Do you mean oh. the one where I I take over the show because he goes for a piss? Yeah, I think it was that one. But you kept referring to, no, to having to peaked. Yeah, I re- but that isn't sadness. That's me needing to say that. Got you. Uh, because of my sense of like I. Jonathan had me on yeah. at a time when I wasn't doing anything. That's right. I was sort of like, I think I was starting to think about doing stand-up again and I was writing, but he just said, oh, I, you know, I think probably someone had dropped out. Mm. Like, Do you want to do the show? I said, yeah, all right. And I made a point of saying, you know, normally people come on to say, I'm doing this amazing TV show. I, you've got me on when I'm not doing anything. Yes. And then I, I wanted, I think it's a need that I have always to confess, and well, and I will always confess something negative, because yeah. I, I think that that's sort of an exorcism of the negative thing, and then might be funny. It sometimes it works because you usually it didn't work completely for that that for you because you thought it was slightly sad. But just, just yeah, I did. I thought whereas I, thought I wouldn't have thought it was sad. I would have thought it was honest. Yes, we could be both. But I suppose there's something See, sad d- about losing status. I suppose, yeah, but maybe it possibly. was me. Maybe I was projecting onto you, and I felt yeah. sorry for you. Whereas in fact, you weren't struggling with the loss of. <laughs> status at all but this is also the pornography thing you used to you used to talk about pornography yeah well i talk about anything that's confessional as well yeah well i talk about anything that i think is happening to me and that i think people don't i don't to be honest with you i don't think i think oh what is it that people are not talking about in a kind of uh you know um controversialist way Uh, i'm not trying to do that i think that I genuinely try and talk about the stuff that I think I want to talk about. Yes. One of those would have been probably at a time pornography. Now I don't feel the need to talk about it as much, no. not because I don't use it anymore, but because it, fe- it feels like something that's been talked out. Yeah, fair to enough. Some extent. Although, but again, me, it was a taboo. That's actually, why well, I let mentioned me tell you something that hasn't been talked about about pornography, which I, if I do ever talk about it again, I, this is what I will say. Because hmm. actually, I got asked by someone at Channel 4 to do it thing about pornography, um, uh, about internet pornography, about how I feel now, yes. having talked about it a lot when I was younger, having a kid, you know, blah, blah, yes, like a course. boy who might be looking at it, whatever. Yeah. And I sort of said, oh, I wouldn't be interested very much in the sort of like, oh, I've changed my mind about it, whatever, uh, even if I have a bit, because this yeah. is actually what I think. What I think is that internet pornography, no doubt, is harmful in a thousand ways. No doubt it is. But it's done one good thing, which is really good, uh, which is when I was growing up, pornography was essentially heterosexual pornography, just one image of a woman. And it was sort of a 22-year-old, probably blonde, sort of woman with enhanced breasts or not whatever, incredibly thin, etc. That was really all you saw in VHS pornography or magazine pornography. Now, if you find erotic, uh, an 87-year-old, you know, mixed-race amputee who's 27 stone, she's out there, and not only is she out there, there's a whole fucking site devoted to her and all her mates who look the same. And no doubt, feminists, and I consider myself one in, uh, you know, in my own way, but no effort will say, oh, well, that's just her being degraded. I'm not sure about that. What I think internet pornography has done is democratise the erotic mm. and smash apart, to some extent, that incredibly oppressive, hom- homogenous idea of what an erotic woman is and say, no, really, very, very unlike that women are going to be found erotic by lots of people and no doubt men as well. And I think that's a good thing. There's lots of shit stuff, I'm sure it's done as well, but I think that's a good thing. Have you listened to John Ronson's new podcast on this? The Butterfly Effect. You'd enjoy that, I think. Okay. So it's a a big recommendation. Okay. I've always thought that the use of women and the use of women's bodies in mainstream stuff, so in newspapers 
uh, obviously pastry, but also I did recently got into a thing you might have seen on Twitter where I attacked the Times mm. for posting. Uh, uh, you know, I posted this thing where they'd used two women in bikinis to say that the ashes had started. That was it, yes. And my point was not you shouldn't have women in bikinis in the newspaper or that I don't like looking at women in bikinis in some kind of puritanical way. My point was, this is what's bad. Yes. What's bad is this is treating women as objects. Yes. In my opinion, more, much more than pornography. Which is, has an honesty to it. I think it does have an honesty to it. And as I say, trust me, you will not see in The Times or indeed on the side of a bus an 85 stone you know, mixed race amputee. You won't. Well, wait you, will see, you, you will see it in pornography. Yes. It's true, um, and that that I kind of need to steer you back slightly. Sorry, you're probably time right. And, no, not at all. Um, because From I don't want to safety. I don't want to spend a lot of time looking at uh, the, the Mary Whitehouse experience, and then the then you and Rob Newman going off to do your own thing together. I mean, the first rock and roll comedians was the thing. You played Wembley uh, Arena. You, you you were huge. What was that like? I and mean, did, did you were you just caught up in it in such a way that you didn't have to? Because you like to analyse stuff. I just mm. wondered whether this because it didn't end happily with you and Rob Newman. Mm. Was this the period of your life where you didn't analyse stuff? You were just on a sort of on rails. Um, no, I did analyse it. Were you constantly? Yeah, uh, I wasn't happy for some of that, and I was really happy for for other bits of it. What? The first bit of it, I mean, in terms of your question before. Mm. I would say it was me and Rob had done a first series of Mary White's Experience on the telly and yes. we were doing a, a live gig at the venue. Now, as I said, I've been on the cabaret circuit for like, I don't know, five years. So I was used yeah. to just rocking up at a comedy gig and no one really knows who you are and you have to win the audience round and who knows how many people are going to be there. Mm. There were queues around the block at this place called The Venue in South London. Mm. It was a 900-seat venue. They couldn't get everyone in and I'd never experienced that. I'd never experienced... And it hadn't really occurred to me that being on telly might do that. Obviously, it might, but it really hadn't occurred to me that suddenly live gigs might be something that people will come to and be fans, like really fans. Um, and that was what happened. And that was when I, I realised, oh, fame has a tangible thing as a comedian, which is you can go on stage and people will like you already. Yes. And actually, that might lead to complacency, but also, as a comedian, I think that was really helpful for me because I've been used to this slightly aggressive, tight 20 that I did, you know, in, in comedy venues where I thought, all right, I'm going to come out and come out fighting and yes. show you blokes, or mainly blokes actually at the time, but, uh, you know, that I'm, like, able to be funny. Yes. Whereas now I could relax and, like, oh, if I... Can try out some stuff, and actually, they'll let they won't boo me off if one joke doesn't because work because they already like because they, they already that's like That's a you. huge difference. It's a huge difference for a comedian. Yes, I don't course. know about anyone else how, how they're famous, how it affects them, but it's a tangible thing yeah. for a comedian. Is you think like, okay, I no longer have to be someone who proves that he's funny. They sort of think I am already, and it makes for a more relaxed stage live thing. Uh, and that was great, and I really like that, and I really liked. You know, I thought we did some great work in the Mary White's experience or whatever. And then, yeah, then mine and Rob's relationship went toxic and that became really hideous for a while. So you were still performing together, but you couldn't yeah. stand the sight of each other? Yeah, I suppose so. I mean, actually, couldn't stand the sight of each other seems like strong. a weird thing, weird way of putting it, because I don't think I ever felt that about Rob. Rob may have felt it about me. Right. I don't think I couldn't, I can't why stand would the he, sight Why of would him. he have felt it about you? Well, what, what happened was, was that Rob became... You know, and it's two sides of this story, I'm sure. But Rob became, un, from my point of view, unbelievably paranoid about sort of top billing, as it were, about sort of like, 
I think Rob felt, because he was by far the most beautiful one, and we had quite a lot of sort of female fans and all yes. that stuff, uh, that people might think, and I think Rob was, you know, at the time, was quite an insecure bloke. Um, oh, because I'm the beautiful one. I mean, again, this doesn't like it's not that good for me anyway. This, but because I'm the beautiful one, people will think Dave is the clever one and oh, the sort gosh. of creative powerhouse. He's yes. got glasses. He's Jewish. Right. Um, people will think that, and that wasn't true. You know, basically, we, as far as I'm concerned, if you're in a creative partnership with someone, especially a comedy one, you're both doing what you're doing, and it's mm. a chemical thing that you've got together. And no one is really, especially when you're writing together, no one is really, you know, more responsible, less responsible. Oh, you have course. to accept that. Uh, but Rob became convinced that. Some people might not think that. So we had to change our name from Badil and Newman to Newman and Badil. Right. And then he became very obsessed with all that and very obsessed with, like, you know... Uh, so his, in, his insecurities hurt you more than they hurt him in a well, way. Well, I didn't really mind it all at first when it was stuff but like... It gets oh, draining. You know, but after a while it became draining and then it became, like... My mistake was Rob decided as part of that that he wanted to be interviewed by himself. And so I said, well, all right then. And then... Journalist would interview me, and I do have a problem with discretion, and sort of I tend to just say what's on my mind. So they would say, "Oh, how's it going?" And I would yeah. say, "Oh, I think he's gone mad. Right, right. He seems to have gone a bit mental." Yes. and that would then be in the paper. Then he would get really angry, and then he would come and shout at me. Yeah. And one time, he, I remember him shouting and shouting at me, and then another time, him, him slagging me off on stage and blah blah blah. And after a while, I thought, "I'm not enjoying this anymore. Can't do this anymore. I'm not enjoying it." But anymore. you had so much in I mean, because you must have been making oodles of cash at the time, so it's hard to walk yeah. away from, or not. I mean, we were doing well, yeah. and I, I don't know if I thought about the cash. I think I thought about what a shame it is that this really powerful creative partnership that is doing incredibly well on TV and live or whatever is going to come apart. But I, Rob as well, I'm sure, uh, wasn't happy. Couldn't hold it together. But I, I absolutely couldn't be in it any longer because yeah. it became about that primarily. Was it with you when you woke up in the morning? Were you waking up and yeah. thinking, oh, shit. Well, let me tell you a very short story. I know you want to get on to other stuff. But this is a this is how bad it got. We ended up we'd had one of these bust ups and we weren't speaking. And then we were doing Leicester de Montfort Hall, which is at the, like a three thousand seat venue. Space, yeah, yeah. Uh, and and Rob, I didn't watch his set by now. He didn't watch my set. And at the time, we were doing stand up and sketches, which we always did. It was yes. always not a complete double act, yes, as I say. Yes, yes. So uh, I did a new bit of material in my set. I went on first. And it was about the fact that the IRA at the time were not allowed to speak directly on the TV. They had to have their voices mm. malformed in some weird way. It was a weird Thatcher yeah. thing. Do you remember it? Yeah, of course. So, and lots of comedians have done jokes about it, but I did some joke about it. The joke I cannot remember in and of itself. But clearly, Rob had put a new bit of material in his set later in the second half about that. And I didn't know that. But meanwhile, he's off stage. He's standing there in his Jarvis outfit. Now, Jarvis was a character that was like a sort of lounge lizard, mm -hmm. sort of posh mm -hmm. man who just yes. talked about sex. Very funny character. He's standing there in that. He's about to come on as Jarvis and do a Jarvis bit. But as I go off, he hasn't, we haven't spoken for three days. He goes, you cunt, you fucking cunt. You knew I did a bit of material about that. You fucking cunt. Right? And then goes on. And then I go into his dressing room at halftime and call him a cunt for yeah. about... 20 minutes. There's about seven journalists on this tour all writing feature <laughs> pieces about the new rock and roll. I mean, it's falling apart, is what I'm saying. And so we, I think we collectively decided we'll do Wembley, which was planned already, and right. that's it. And that was and, the... And lots of people said, oh, it's a publicity stunt. And it but wasn't. it really wasn't. It really wasn't, no. As, as I mean, history has, has attested. Yeah. I bumped um, into him recently, and we were photographed recently. Yeah, I saw that. It was that. really nice to see him. Did, did you, had you missed him, or would that be the wrong word? 
Well, when I saw him, I thought, you know, he's he's a really funny bloke. Yes. I think he's an un, unbelievable. When I worked with him, he's an unbelievable talent. Like really, incredibly, wildly funny mm. and interesting and unusual and very mercurial know, as well. Yeah, but brilliant, he's brilliant stand up and and also fucking hilarious writer. All that. Um, and when I saw him again, I just thought, oh, we actually really got on. Oh, that's you nice. know, and it was really yes. nice to see him again. But there had been some talk about, um, I can reveal this now, uh, when we were pictured together, it was at the Harper Collins, because we both write right. books now, yes. Harper Collins. So I, it was a picture of us looking really old, and I wrote, com- <laughs> I wrote comedy is the old prog rock. Because <laughs> we looked like two old members of Genesis or something. And, and then Wembley got in touch. Wembley Arena got in touch Straight with up. my agents yeah. and said, 25 years, do you want to do a reunion gig? And I thought, well, I don't know what we'd do, really. Right. But I thought, I'll ask Rob, and Rob yeah. just said no. Still. I'd ask Rob, do we want to chat about it? Rob yeah. said no. Not interested. Yeah. Door closed. Yeah. But then again, if he'd said yes, you might have you might have panicked. Kicked it. Yeah. yeah. Well, <laughs> I, I just I would have thought if he'd said yes, I thought I had no idea what we we're going to do. No, of course. You know, I mean, we could do history today and not even have to make up for it. <laughs> <laughs> it's great. Um, and then what happened? Was because when what, what was the gap between that and when you started working with Frank Skinner? Was About that two weeks? Was it really? You went yeah. straight off to, to... yeah. Because what happened was I'd become friendly with Frank. Um, and actually he was probably telling Frank about all this sort of very depressing stuff that was going on between me and Rob. Yes. Uh, and well, Fr- Frank Skinner has dark places in him as well. I mean, it's he, not... He's... He, he certainly does. Yes. Uh, but uh, they're different dark yes. places. Yes. Uh, and they're not about that quite... There's not certainly not those kind of insecurities. No. Um, but uh, I... What happened with Frank was on the cabaret circuit, um, I had bumped into him a couple of times, and we'd bonded about football. I know that sounds cliched, but it was exactly what happened. Yeah. We were watching, I think it was uh, Egypt, Republic of Ireland in the 1990 World Cup backstage at Jonglers, you know that club? Mm-hmm. Um, I was still on the cabaret circuit in 1990. And uh, we started arguing, right? And I said, I can't bear the way they play. And he disagreed with me. But at the end of it, I thought, oh, he's quite a good bloke and he really knows about football. And apparently he thought the same thing. And then Frank split up from his girlfriend. He'd originally he'd already split up from his wife yeah. due to a very complicated Catholic issue. Right. Uh, he was very worried about all that to do with, I could tell you explain the whole thing, but it would take another sure, podcast. Yeah. Uh, and he was in a bit of a state and he didn't have anywhere to live. And I hardly met this bloke, but I said, oh, well, I've got a flat in Kilburn. My brother would move out. It's a box room in it. You can go and stay there. Stay there for a couple of weeks. He stayed with me for six years. I never put the fucking rent up. He became, over that time, a regular on British television. I never put the rent up. 40 quid a week. (laughs) Which I'm not even sure he paid, to be honest. But we became very close. And then I stopped working with Rob. And just as it happened, I've been doing... It was on Radio Five. Mm. They'd had a regular fantasy football, not a, not a show like no. our show, but just a league. Yes, and I was a member of the league. And as a result, the bloke who brought fantasy football to this country, uh, he called me up and he said, uh, "Do you think this could work on the telly?" And I said, "I don't know, maybe." And I spoke to Frank about it, and then we just created the show. And and that was huge immediately. There was no slow yeah. burn with that, was no, it? No, it was very big. I mean, yes. a very cult way, in sure. a very post pub nineties way. But yes. yes. Yeah, I mean, and now would be huge because it like got three and a half million yeah. at sort of Friday night at yeah. eleven o'clock. It would be, yeah. And that for someone of my age, that was, I mean, you were the two coolest dudes on telly at that point. That That's was, good. Um, yeah, well, it was a brilliant show to do. And it I ran mean, for a while, brilliant. and you you got to do the song and you know, with with lightning seeds, and yeah. I mean, you were you were sort of king of football. Yeah, yeah. Well, the, I mean, you know, the song is a whole other thing, uh, but. Uh, you know, people talk about. People ask me sometimes about you know my most, my proudest moment or whatever. I don't know if it's the proudest moment or whatever, but I do think that the moment that Three Lions 
was first sung at Wembley when yeah. I was there, which was a spontaneous happening. Uh, because uh, in that tournament, England hadn't done very well, had drawn with Switzerland, and then played Scotland, and the, and the yes. first half wasn't yeah, very yeah. good. Yeah. And then in the second half, basically, Gary McAllister missed a penalty. Then Gaza scored. Then the sun came out. And then a man who I will always be grateful for, but I don't even know the name of, the DJ at Wembley, against the FA's instructions, because they'd said, don't put that song on. It's it wasn't officially it's endorsed. Not officially, or, yeah. officially, it's not. It's a bit partisan. Yes. Put it on anyway. And the whole crowd joined in. Like, without any sense that I had that they knew the words or anything. Oh, you know, man. You know, and it was literally the most extreme moment. It was Frank there? Yeah, 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 Frank was next to me. Yeah, yeah, And then girlfriends as well. Um, and Frank's girlfriend at the time was half German, I remember. But anyway, that's sort of irrelevant. <laughs> but, but the sense of hitting the spot, I suppose, with something that you had done, it's very rarely encapsulated in such a moment. You know, you do yeah, something and you hope it's going to work, you hope but you're going to gonna like there. it. And sometimes they do, yes. and then you realise that gradually, a bit like I was talking about with noticing that me and Robert sold out this place. Like, yeah. oh, I see we're doing all right. Yeah, yeah. But with that, it was like, wow, this yeah. explosion of people saying, this is our thing, you know. And also, we were really happy anyway, because England had just won and yes, they were playing well. So the euphoria of that is hard to imagine, you know. It's really hard to imagine. I remember the Holland game which is, you remember, we won 4-1 and the people were singing the song by then, like, yeah, mentor. Yeah. My manager saying to me, this is incredible. He said to me, <laughs> he said to me, if you win an Oscar, it won't be better than this. Now, I very much doubt I'm going to win an Oscar, but I sort of knew what he meant, yes. which is, it must be brilliant to win an Oscar, but at the end of the day, it's an industry thing, mm. whereas this really felt as close as you could get to the people. Yeah, and the zeitgeist. So, it, I mean, yeah. it's you. And yeah. it, 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 it must have been, it must have been say, phenomenal. I, we wrote those lyrics. Yeah. We wrote those lyrics. And, and they are and brilliant lyrics. I, I, I think they are They really lyrics. are. I think they are because they're vulnerable. Yes, I think exactly. that's the key element. And they capture it. the element and it couldn't have been written by two people who weren't proper football players. You, no. couldn't, you couldn't have cobbled that together because you... you you know, got a marketing success in another area, and they said, "Can you do as a football song?" That, no. that was proper fans, and that's why yeah. it cut through so much. Yeah, well, I mean, Ian Brody. Whole... Well, the music's brilliant. I think it's yes, a it beautiful is. song, but also Ian Brody had noticed that Ian Brody uh, decided that he wasn't. I mean, he's a football fan, yes. but he didn't feel quite equipped to write the lyrics. He was a big fantasy football fan, so he phoned me and Frank up and said... From his canal you... boat, if memory serves. Yeah, was living, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and said, can you write the lyrics? And we slightly cheekily said, can we sing it as well? Yeah, yeah. Um, And he went, well, all right then. <laughs> it's sort of amazing, really. But but that thing of, of like, yeah, it being us knowing what it means to yes. be an England football fan. Yes. Let's try and capture how that really feels. I don't think that would be done before with a football song. Even like the uh, New Order one, which a lot of people like, and which I think sure. is a good song, it's not really a football song. No, and it's you know. much more studio-y. Yeah, I mean, it's, it yeah, it's a great song, but it's, it's, it's a song. It's a love song, really, Yes, uh, with a John Bodds rap in it, whereas our the song John is Bob. about football. It's got yes. Gary Lineker's name yeah. in it, you yeah, know, yeah, Bobby yeah. Charlton's. Yeah. Um, and, I, and it did capture something, and it also it did something else, which I think maybe has gone away now because of one of your favourite subjects, which is Brexit and yes. stuff, which is, I think we managed, if you go and watch the footage of that, you see loads and loads and loads and loads of people waving crosses of St George. Yeah. And we managed for a brief moment to create a type of English nationalism yes. which didn't feel aggressive, triumphalist, racist. It felt vulnerable. Mm. It felt like, actually, you know, this is a great country, but maybe there's a way of singing about it and being it, which is not really aggressive and horrible. Yes. And for a moment, that was there, and now it's gone again. Seems to have done. Um, we, we're pretty much out of time, so we, we need to talk a little about the tour that you're going on yeah. with, with the show. Um, we've talked a lot about the show and the um, astonishingly intimate 
details that you share, I have a much better understanding of who you are now after after spending this time together and why this actually isn't a remarkable departure for you or it isn't in any way a kind of change of direction. It is just you looking at the things you find most fascinating about yourself and your world mm. and trying to make sense of them through performing. So mm. it was the loss of your dad, clearly, that focused... No, my dad is still alive. So, the loss of your mum, forgive me, that focused mm. your mind on on their relationship and your your family. Who was the first person that you told you might do a stage show about your mum's 20-year affair and your dad's dementia? My brother. And how did he um, react? <laughs> not well. My, <laughs> not well at all. My younger brother, I was at the time I did it, uh, when I first decided I was definitely going to do it, I think I told my older brother in yes. London, but I then went off and I did a discovery show in China. I did, I did this thing about the Silk Road. And so I'd written to my brother, because he lives in New York, he's a cab driver in New York. And right. I'd, I'd written to him and said, oh, look, I might be doing this. And he just wrote a one-line thing saying, back, you're not doing it. You're not doing it. And uh, I still, oh, Christ, what's difficult about this is I know that it's going to be a celebration. Yes. I know it's going to be come from love. And people aren't going to feel this is a trashing yes. of either of my parents. And it's, you know that absolutely, but you can't yeah. necessarily articulate it's it until it's hard to explain it until you see the show. Of course. You know, and yes. so I had to say to both my brothers, you are gonna, I know neither of you want me to do this, yeah. but you're going to have to trust me. And now both of them do really like it. And I suppose the key moment was, uh, my young brother hadn't seen it at this point, but I did it at the Chocolate Factory yes. first before I did it in the West End. And my older brother, I'd said to him, and I'm very, very close to my older brother, come and see the workshops. I did workshops at Soho Theatre. And if you don't like anything, you really don't like anything, I'll take it out. I don't know if that was true, but I said it anyway. Um, and he sort of avoided it. I think it was right. so, pretty soon after my mum died, like yes. only a few months, and I think he found the idea difficult. You were grieving. This is how you processed well, Definitely, yeah. this is how I, I was dealing with my own grief. Yeah. She died very suddenly. So right. partly it was like trying to deal with this sudden absence. And she didn't have that long coming to terms yes. with it thing. So uh, then he comes on the first opening night at the chocolate factory and there were loads of critics in the audience quite a small mm. theatre I'm looking around I can see Michael Billington from The Guardian and blah blah and I had a Q&A encore at that point which I've now stopped for various reasons just because I've got the same questions every night and I got bored of it so I've changed it but then I had a Q&A and there's all these important critics I can see loads of them bloody Quentin Letts is there for goodness sake Great. all sorts of people and in a very me way I said look I'm sorry if I alienate anyone with this but I have to find out first of all what my older brother thought of this show he didn't have his hand up and I was a bit worried and I said Ivor what did you think and he said oh I loved it and then he said I loved it because it felt like she was in the room oh. and it did make me cry on stage but it made me realise something very important which is the whole fucking show is saying let's try and describe people who have gone whether they've gone through death or gone through illness it's as they actually are if you do it as they actually are, if you hold to the truth, then even if those truths are negative, it's a celebration of who they are. Because people will come away thinking, oh, I really know who that person was. And that's what felt to me good about it. People have come up to me after the show and said, oh, I wish I'd met your mum. And what they mean is, I feel like I know who she was properly. So that thing that I started with was saying, when you say she's wonderful, you're basically raising her out of existence. Yes. Let's try and be absolutely true about her and see where that gets us. I had achieved that. That was brilliant. Thank you, David. Thank you very much. And that was David Bedil. I'm joined now by Rich, who produces the Unfiltered series. We can call it a series now, can't we? Yeah. We've got quite a body of work together. We're double digits now. Uh, and I, I hesitate because I think we may have um, uh, knocked at this door in the past. I'm still waiting for one to go horribly wrong because I think I think, think that went really well again, <laughs> yeah. didn't it? <laughs> God, someone's going to catch on to us soon. <laughs> it is. So we've sort of come a cropper. But he, 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 it's a lovely mixture of... I mean, he's clearly big on analysing himself and thinking about himself, but not in any mm. way that makes him seem like someone who has an over 
inflated opinion of himself. I don't know. I don't know quite how he does that actually to to find himself so fascinating, mm. but not in a way that makes you think he doesn't find other people fascinating. Yeah, I think it's because he seems like someone that's analysed himself so much. He's yes. gone round the block. He's gone beyond. He's gone through sort of the through uh, the less. Uh, agreeable part of that and he's back around to the other side now yes yes and you can't I mean I don't you can't really ask for more as an interviewer that someone who no. really nothing's off limits and Absolutely he, not. if anything he, he, he suffers from an in- inability to self-edit <laughs> yeah like I was sat in the control room and um uh, you know, you were talking about anti-semitism I think and then someone phoned me and I left the room and I, I came back in two seconds later and you were talking about dementia yes. and then something else happened you were talking about something else so I was like oh my god <laughs> like, of all of the ones we've done that was probably the one where I panicked the most with 10 minutes left because I glanced down at the clock and thought, mm. oh, my Lord, we've still got so much <laughs> ground been to everywhere. cover. Yes. And, and, we and we've had everywhere. bits like that with Robert Webb and Matt Lucas and, and the, the, perhaps the professional performers. Mm. Um, but, but with him, it really was a sense, that probably because I know his work so much, and it goes right back to my school days. Yeah. That I, I could have, we could, I reckon we could have done three or four hour-long separate podcast looking Definitely. at separate yeah. areas of his life. I'll suggest it to we'll him. We'll do a 10-part series. I'll suggest it to him when I go backstage at his, uh, at his gig next year. Ooh la la. <laughs> You're listening to Unfiltered with James O'Brien. Brought to you by Joe. Hey, folks, I'm Mark Marin from the WTF podcast, and this episode is brought to you by Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues, your ally to help tackle your allergy symptoms this season. I love the change of seasons, but nobody loves pollen and all those other things floating in the air that make you sneeze during this nice weather. Kleenex Ultra Soft Tissues are hypoallergenic and allergist approved. So fight back against watery eyes and runny noses without worrying about irritating your skin. For this allergy, Allergy season, grab Kleenex and face allergies head on. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details.